this morning, I want to take you to the Word of God and continue in the series that uh, was begun here on prayer. And I was asked to speak specifically on Luke chapter 5, verse 16, which doesn't give me a lot to work with. One little verse there, one sentence, basically. But I thought that I could uh, pick out some other text and, and, and build around that. Uh, I think in all of these, these uh, messages where we're going to be looking at the subject of prayer, we're really taking uh, a lot of this from the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the model prayer that our Lord offered, uh, which portions of were used already this morning, that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done, where? On earth. How? Just as it is, where? In heaven. And that's a big deal, that we're trying to live in such a way that his power and glory would be evident on earth, just as it is in heaven. So we'll keep that in mind. We'll think about some of the other things that Jesus had to say about prayer from that sermon, uh, not just today, but in the weeks to come. But in Luke chapter 5, I'll pick it up at verse 12. It says that while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Well, let's pray again and just ask, Lord, that you would do what you purpose to do here this morning, that you would speak through as you already have. Continue, we pray, to make your presence known among us. Take the words that I offer, uh, the words that are heard by the people, the thoughts that come into our minds as we listen, and we pray that you would achieve the purpose that you have in mind by your spirit, through your word, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I sit here like a fool, hardened in leisure, pray little, do not sigh for the church of God, yet burn in a big flame of my untamed flesh. In short, I should be ardent in spirit, but I'm 
ardent in the flesh. Already eight days have passed in which I have not written anything in which I have not prayed, not studied. Those are the words of Martin Luther to his dear friend Philip Melanchthon in 1521. I suppose that we could cut Mr. Luther a little slack. After all, this was four years after he nailed his thesis to the wall of the church in Wittenberg. He had the whole reformation of the church to attend to. Who has time for prayer and for study? I mean, I can imagine it's a pretty demanding position to be in. I mean, he had stirred things up. The church was in upheaval. People were angry. Other people were encouraged. He was in demand. So much so that he found it hard to pray. Well, I want to give him a break for that because then that would let me off the hook myself because I know what it is to be busy. How about you? I know what it's like to have a lot of demands in my life, a lot of expectations, and it seems that the more I commit to, the more I want to do, the more the pressure comes, the less time seems available, the harder it is to pray. To find time, the demands are unending. And it seems the more I lock into the right thing, the, the harder it is. Even Jesus. Jesus led a demanding life. He would go out into the towns and the villages and he would preach. And the more he preached, the more people wanted to hear. And so the more they wanted to hear, the more he preached. And then the crowds would grow and more and more the demand intensified. He would heal people. And you can't keep something like that quiet. He would speak words of power rebuking the, the, the powers of the world that would, that, that would create this disease and he would speak truth and people would be healed and every single time the word spread and people would come from more and more from increasing measure from all over wanting to see, wanting to understand, wanting to receive some of that healing themselves. And as the demand intensified, Jesus would make it his practice whenever possible to go find some lonely place to pray. Yet even then, the demands intensified. There's a, in Matthew 14, there's this great story where, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, when he goes to and ends up preaching that sermon, he, he sends the disciples away at one point on a boat out in the lake so that he could be by himself. And he's trying to walk along the shore of the lake to pray. And the crowd figures it out, and they start finding him. And it says that 5,000 people... I, I, you got to read carefully sometimes. 5,000 people plus the women and children. So that's... i got to figure... That's a crowd like twelve to 15,000 people, you know, that would fit Roger's arena. You know? following him on the shore, demanding his attention. 
And this was happening all the time. All the time. The demand. Intensity. In chapter 5, or sorry, it's chapter 4, we see a time when Jesus had preached in the synagogue, verse 38. And he goes to the home of Simon, who would be Peter. We don't know a lot about Peter's life, but it says there in verse 38 that Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Again, don't know a lot about Simon's family life. What was going on with his wife and his, uh, his parents? I can imagine his wife is, might be a little resentful of the fact that her husband is now following after this prophet. You know, the least this guy could do is come, speak a word of comfort to mom. Here she is. Simon Peter's mother-in-law, raging fever, sweat pouring down. She's shaking. And Jesus came into the room. He sees her there. And he loves her. He rebukes the sin, the, 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 the disease. He speaks words of healing and freedom. And the text says that she is heal. The fever disappears. A smile returns to her face and not only to hers but to her daughters and to her son-in-law, Simon Peter. I imagine it was a beautiful moment. It's a wonderful interlude in all of the craziness because this was not an unknown person. This was family. As Jesus, I can imagine him reaching out, putting his arm around Simon. (laughs) As he looks and sees his his mother-in-law healed. And I imagine that they would have liked to have lingered there for a moment. Just waited in, in, in that time of familial joy. Very quickly, the demands come again. Jesus is rushed out the door and and sent out to to the people. Verse 43, he said that this is as he would have it. Chapter 4, 43. I must, he says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. That's why I'm here to preach, to share, to heal, to town after town, person after person. Unending. But every now and then, whenever he could find the opportunity, chapter 5, verse 16, he would withdraw himself. He would step away. He would go find some lonely place. And he would pray. This was prayer on purpose. Prayer 
with a purpose. This didn't happen except that he intended it. Prayer on purpose. Okay, this is a sermon, so I'm going to give you three things to remember here. And they're really simple. You don't need PowerPoint for this. Purposeful prayer. One is, that, that means it was intentional. Intentional. He would withdraw, the text says. That was a deliberate act. It doesn't happen naturally. Especially when the pressure's on. Especially when the demands are so intense. You have to choose this. To step away. Because I don't know, if if you're like me, you know, when when people are making demands in your life, it kind of gets your attention. When they're in your face, when they're speaking forcefully, when they're asking and begging, that gets your attention. When there's no end of it. You have to make an intentional, purposeful choice to step away. And it seems like the wrong move, doesn't it? When there's somebody in front of you demanding, when there's so much that needs to be done, when there seems like there isn't enough time for any of it to step away, seems like the wrong move. It's counterintuitive. It feels like if the demand is present, you just have to keep digging. You just have to keep serving. You have to be present. But no. Jesus stepped away. He withdrew. And this was intentional. He did it because he chose it. An intentional act to withdraw. Second thing, it, it was a conditional act. Prayer on purpose is conditional. And I get that from the grammar here. Um, the, there's a, it's not represented in this particular version that I'm looking at, but uh, G, in other versions say Jesus would often withdraw himself to pray. It's this woodness, this conditionality. So what, in other words, it's like, I would say, you or I would say if we're talking about something in life, uh, you know, if this happens, then we would do this, right? That's how the word works. It's the imperfect active and something that's incomplete that needs, uh, needs completion, needs to come to perfection if, uh, based on certain circumstances. An active move is made based on, on the, the conditions that exist in the circumstance. So if this happens, then we would do this, right? This is what we would do in these conditions. So what were the conditions that Jesus was looking at here? Demand. This desire, this incessant demand on his time and on his energy. See, I go the other way, right? As I was saying, the deeper the demand, the more deeper I dig, right? More demand, I'm digging deeper. And the problem is, the digger I deep, the less I, sorry, the deeper I dig, <laughs> the digger I deep, the deeper I, <laughs> the deeper I dig. Boy, that sounded so good when I wrote it down. <laughs> the deeper I dig, the less I find. Isn't that true? 
Like you just keep pulling and pulling and digging and grabbing and before long, there's nothing left. Isn't that true? The demand, the demand, the demand. So I dig and I dig and I dig and I have to go deeper and deeper and deeper because there's nothing left. Jesus would withdraw to a lonely place. A desolate place. A wilderness. A closet, he said in the sermon. Some quiet, lonely place. Because he understood, this would be the third thing, that prayer on purpose is vulnerable. Vulnerable. I was thinking about this. You know, like we could get the wrong idea about this wilderness thing, this lonely place thing, this other text say this desolate place. We could get the idea that the reason Jesus would go to the desolate or lonely or wilderness place was because he didn't like the world that God had created. You know, and so we were trying, he was trying to turn his back on the things of earth in order to just be spiritual in an almost platonic or Gnostic sense. And that's not the case here. I, I, God loves the world and, taught, and Jesus loves the people and, the, and, and everybody that came to him. But the thing about this, and I, and I picked this up from the sermon in Matthew chapter six, when he talked about prayer, what did he say? Well, prayer wasn't about you know, standing up on street corners where everybody can see you, right? And making a big show. Prayer isn't about performance, saying a lot of words, you know, like, like, like saying as much as could be said in order to, to display eloquence or greatness of being or spirit or anything like that. No, he said, prayer is what happens when you go into the closet. And why? Because in the closet, there's nobody to perform for. Right? There's nobody to notice. Nobody to see. It's just you it's just God and whatever's in your heart. And that can be frightening. That can be scary. To be that vulnerable, to be that open in the presence of God himself. Yet this is the condition by which God trains us by which he teaches humility, by which he prepares us to offer more to a world in need. It doesn't happen by accident. It's intentional. And we go there even more when the conditions demand. And we, when we find ourselves there, we are vulnerable in his presence. This is prayer on purpose. Prayer that has a purpose. The purpose of God's kingdom. That it would come on earth as it is in heaven. Another Martin Luther quote, he once said, and this is famous, a lot of people quote this, and it makes me shiver every time I hear it. I don't know what you think about this. You've probably heard it. He's, Luther said... He said, I got so much to get done. I'm paraphrasing. 
But he said, I got so much to get done in any given day that if I don't spend two hours in prayer, I don't have a chance. He says, I have so much demand in my life that if I'm not spending two hours a day in prayer, what hope do I have? Okay, I don't know about you. I get it. Everything I just said, you know, would support that, but let me just be human for a moment and say that that, that terrifies me. I don't know. I, I get the too busy part, but the two hours part, that seems to me to be exaggerated. Or maybe it was. I don't know. I mean, I read books on prayer. I, I don't know if... There's this famous book by a guy named E.M. Bounds called Power Through Prayer, and he tells story after story after story of these people from days gone by that used to spend ridiculous amounts of time in prayer. I mean, surely they couldn't. I mean, they, it's got to be exaggerated, right? <laughs> you know, hours upon hours of prayer. This, there's this one story I've never forgotten. This guy who used to get up at 3 and 4 every morning. He was a pastor. Every single morning, I don't know, they didn't have alarm clocks back, this was 150 years ago, but somehow he'd get up at three or four in the morning, he had a little blanket that he kept by his bed, and he would get up and pull the blanket over his shoulders and he would pray. And his wife would complain and say, come on, come back to bed, you need your sleep, and he, I always thought not too kindly, would say to her, relax, woman, he said, I have the souls of thousands to account for, and I know not how it is with many of them. Well, I, I, I have to trust he was sincere. But when I hear stories like that, I tend to feel more guilt than grace. <laughs> you know? I feel like this is just one more discipline to add to the demand of an already busy life. You know what I mean? I mean, I know those guys didn't have Twitter to deal with and Facebook and television, so maybe they had more time. But surely God didn't intend me to feel so guilty about the weakness of my prayer. Well, you know, I think about Jesus again. Don't you think it's weird that Jesus had to pray? You know, on some level? I mean, he's the son of God, right? The incarnate Christ. Why did he have to pray? I mean, in Trinitarian thought, he'd be kind of praying to himself in a sense. And we know there's a sense in which that was true. And yet, the prayer life of Jesus, I think, speaks to his awareness, evidence of his humanity. Right? His kinship with his heavenly father. And his awareness of the moment in which he lived toward his mission. When we read these stories about Jesus in the Gospels, one of the things we have to do is, is think about the timeline in salvation history. 
what God is doing across the sweep of time in that particular moment, which is why we read what we read, read earlier in chapter 5, just before this, verse 12 and, and following. I don't know if you picked this up, but it is kind of strange. Verse 12, he's in one of the towns. A man comes along who's covered with leprosy, which is a horrible disease. He sees Jesus. He falls with his face to the ground, which sounds painful. <laughs> he begs him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean, which is a tremendous statement of faith, right? Lord, you can make me clean. I know you can't. You just have to be willing. Doesn't get better than that. That's faith. So that's what he says to Jesus. If you want to, Lord, I know you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, which, by the way, is a big deal. He's got leprosy, remember? Jesus reaches out, touches him, and says, look, guess what? I am willing. Be clean. And immediately, the leprosy leaves the man. Now, this is miracle stuff, right? That doesn't happen. Jesus, by his power, touches him, speaks words, and immediately the leprosy leaves. And, okay, that's the part we've got used to reading. It's crazy, <laughs> amazing, but we're kind of used to reading that in the, in the Gospels. Look what comes next. Like, this is a big deal. Leprosy, that's a tough disease, right? <laughs> God, verse 14, then Jesus orders them, don't tell anyone. What? Don't tell anyone. Instead, go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Well, wait a minute. That, that, that sounds Old Testament, but this is New Testament. That was then. This is Jesus. Like, what's... Hmm. Well, Jesus understood his moment in time. And at that time, according to the law, a healing was not considered complete until it had been sort of observed and quantified and registered at the temple by the priest. It was a, a way of, uh, and then there, there was the, uh, the cleansing that needed to happen, the sacrifices that needed to be made, and this was consistent with the practice of God's people up until that time. Now, this puts me in mind of what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5, just at the beginning of his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where we have his model prayer, where we're taking a lot of our, our guidance. Chapter 5, Matthew 5, verse 17. Do you remember what he said? He said, I didn't come into the world to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He understood that in this moment, when he came into the world, what was going on is I mean, the law had been guiding the people of God until that point in time, governing the activity of people among themselves. And up until that time, that's how it worked. And Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of that, but to take it to another level. To show you what it looks like to live on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on, the rest, chapter five, chapter six, you can keep reading, it's incredible. All of the ways by which he shows what it is to receive the law, but then elevate it to the level of heaven, to the level of one's heart. Jesus says, don't tell anyone, not yet. The moment isn't right. We're building something here. There's a trajectory to this thing. This thing is happening, as I said, on purpose. 
There's a purposefulness to this, a trajectory to it, and it's all about the coming of the kingdom. Because Jesus is going to move on from this, and it's not always going to be quite as powerful and happy and beautiful as it is now as he's teaching and people are loving it and they're flocking to him and he's healing them and everybody's happy. It's going to shift. And they're going to take him and you know the story. They're going to abuse him. They're going to raise him up. They're going to put him on a cross. They're going to put him to his death. And through that means he's going to win for you and I, the grace that we need to stand before the Father. As his, that's what it's going to look like. That's what it's going to take for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so you and I can read these stories and these uh, teachings from the New Testament about prayer. And we and we'll take them seriously and we'll try to live this out and we will fail. We will look to Jesus' example and we will say to ourselves, yeah, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to block off this time. I'm going to be disciplined. And we will until we're not. And at that moment that we fail, we're going to need to reach out and take the hand of Jesus who made it possible for us to live by his grace and not by the demands, the disciplines of the law. Lord, have mercy on us. I mean, you know how we do it, right? We compare ourselves to each other. We don't really know what's going on, but we sort of look and, and say, well, Dave over here, he looks like he prays all the time. I wish I could pray like him. Or Jake, there's a man of prayer. Is he? We compare ourselves, we feel like we're failing. And it's in that moment that we, we had to go find one of those lonely places and say, Lord, be gracious to us. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And I know what I want to be. And I know how much I fail. I know how much I need you, but I know how little I understand about what you're doing in my moment, in this life, in this church, in, the, in this city. And I'm just going to be open before you, Lord, in this lonely place, in this desert place, this closet, this hidden place where only you can see what's in my heart, where I can't fool anyone, where I don't even need to perform, Lord. Forgive me. And he does. He will. 
because of Jesus and what he did. Now, prayer is a hard thing, as I've been saying. I've just been trying to be honest about this because one thing I don't like when I'm listening to preachers is, is, is they get up here and they sometimes, and they make it sound so wonderful and so easy and so perfect and, you know, it's just not always like that. It's hard, and I, you know, we'll, we'll get to this part, I'm sure, when, when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, talks about these, these people who are trying to pray in such a way that uh, they're comparing themselves to each other, they're standing on street corners, all this sort of thing. And, and I get that because it seems to me, you know, from being around church a long time, it seems to me that that's what prayer is supposed to be, right? Like, so when we, we pray in public with one another, I know we don't want this and we don't say this, but somehow there's this sense in which I, you know, I, I can't actually voice my prayer unless I have a certain level of eloquence, right? You know, that I have a, I have a certain capacity that I'm not going to embarrass myself or, you know, I'm going to sound holy enough, you know, or, or, or but that's hard. That's really hard. Some of us, you know, English isn't our first language and we come into a prayer time here or something. And we go, well, I can't pray because my words aren't good enough, right? Jesus won't understand me. Like, really? <laughs> oh, boy. You know how messed up we... I, I, forgive me if I'm stepping on toes here, but it, this bothers me sometimes. You know, we use a word like petitionary prayer, you know, but like, like as if God is the government and we need to write for him a petition, you know, and we need to add as many names as possible and, 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 and say it as forcefully as we possibly can so that God can't possibly do anything but give us exactly what we want. I mean, that's what we do with the government <laughs> or try. And Jesus just kind of takes a chainsaw to all of that. <laughs> and says, that's not the thing. Read it, Matthew chapter 6. It's not about the words you say or how many of them. It's not about piling up words, so many, so many. Words and minutes and hours as if, you know, God is impressed by the quantity of what we give him. Right? No. It says, in fact, when, see, these, those guys in those days, they used to, like, not shower and shave, you know, in order to give the appearance that they didn't have time to shower or shave because they were so deep in prayer for hours in the morning. Well, I guess they got their reward. Jesus says, no, clean up, you know. Go find a closet and just... Be real for once in your life in the presence of God and see what he'll say. That's scary, but it sounds like something I could do, you know? Prayer on purpose. Prayer for purpose. reading some other stuff about Luther. I, I remember I read this years ago and it stuck with me and it's been really, really helpful. So I'll give it to you. Maybe it'll help you. Martin Luther had a barber. 
even back those days, to cut, he had a young guy who cut his hair. And Luther being the guy he was, he would try to take these haircutting sessions and use it like a discipling process. He was mentoring his barber in the faith, okay? And I read this letter he sent to the barber. See, this young guy, I don't know his name, was complaining to his mentor, Martin Luther, that, you know, and none of you have this issue. I mean, we're talking hypothetically, right? I understand. None of you have this issue. This barber, this young guy, he would get into prayer, and he would get distracted. I, I know that doesn't happen to us, but, but his mind would wander, and he would feel terrible about that because he wasn't spiritual. His mind would chase off other things after other things when he's supposed to be praying. So he asked his mentor about that. Luther, I love this. He said, look, if your mind is chasing down some other path, take Jesus with you down that path. Huh. He said, if, if your mind is so preoccupied with this, if it's so important to you, that, that, that that's where your mind wants to go, then fine, go there, but take Jesus. <laughs> and make that the substance of your prayer. I love that, because I mean, I always sit down and start praying, and I think about the Canuck game last night. And so, hey, Jesus, what do you think about the Canucks? And then I realize that he probably doesn't care a great deal about the Canucks, and then I pop back into focus. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm joking, but you understand. I had... I don't know what a desolate place or a wilderness place or a lonely place looks like where I live, but I do have a chair, a, a prayer chair. Well, it's a chair that gets used for other things, but in the morning before I go to work, I, I, I go to this particular chair. It's on the end of the patio on our condo. And I'll sit there, and it's kind of a way from the rest of the, the condos, so there's not a lot there that can distract me. I, I sit, and it's up high, and so uh, I'm able to focus. And something about that, it just reminds me that when I sit in that chair, what I'm doing right now is I'm praying. It's just a little thing, but it's helpful. Do you have a prayer chair or a particular place? One of the things I like to do Maybe you're like me. I like to go on prayer walks, long walks sometimes. And I don't know what it is. It, it, it's, it's weird because, you know, there's traffic and there are people coming by and there's things to see and all that, but something about getting myself into motion, you know, and just getting in, in the flow of walking, like people don't interrupt me, right? Make sure the phone's turned off or maybe I don't even take it. But, but I get walking and I find I'm able to pray. Maybe that was a little bit like what Jesus would do. Let me think about that. Think about uh, some of the patterns that you could establish that would give you this opportunity to be purposeful in the prayers that you offer. We're going to be thinking more about this in the weeks to come. But for now, it's enough for us to remind ourselves not... Not to feel guilty about the example of Jesus, but to recognize that 
that it is a demanding world. And there is a lot expected of us. And if we just keep digging and digging and digging, we're going to find very quickly that we've got nothing left to give. But if we counterintuitively make it our practice that here's what we would do. When faced with demand, we would pray. We would withdraw ourselves. We would find that place, that chair, that walk, that whatever it is, and we would be present to the God who wants to shape us and use us and speak truth to us and encourage us and just love on us that we might be true to his purpose, the purpose for our prayers. Lord, may it be, we pray. Lord, we can easily feel guilty about this sort of thing. Lord, deliver us from guilt and allow us to rest in grace, the grace that you made possible by your son. And Lord, as we pray, as we get intentional about this, because we know it won't happen by accident, Lord, as we, as we intentionally withdraw and you lead us to that, Lord, we, we pray that you would deepen us in that sense of grace, that we might rest forgiven, know your love, and be able to offer it to others, to then be, be empowered to go into the world and to provide whatever's needed according to the gifts you've given us, according to the calling that you've placed in our lives. May it be, Lord, in Jesus' name.